It is my absolute pleasure to introduce today's speaker. Um, so we have Dr. Matt Shuba. So Matt is an assistant professor of medicine uh, in the Department of Critical Care Medicine at Cleveland Clinic. Um, some of you may know him from social media or from the talk he gave here. I can't remember if it was last year or the year before. That's on um, the Maryland CC project about Zintensivism. Um, I really uh, started to follow Matt's work and really started to um, to kind of read everything that he wrote and published. Um, he, he recently has written a, a beautiful review on RV therapies and ARDS that was published in Critical Care. And after reading this review, I knew that we had to have Matt come talk about the right ventricle. Um, so as I said to Matt before he started, the right ventricle is something that I very much um, am afraid of and I, and I very much respect. And I think it's often under um, under thought about in ARDS. And so I'm very happy to have Matt here today to kind of share his thoughts uh, on uh, what he's calling the people's ventricle. So, um, Matt, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Andy. I really appreciate it. Um, this is a great opportunity for me, um, as, I, as I've told Andy before and maybe some of the rest of you, I kind of grew up on the Maryland Critical Care Project. I was like, you know, tuned into it ever since I was a resident. Um, so it's like kind of surreal for me to be here. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, and even better than that, I'm talking about one of my favorite topics, which is the right ventricle. Um, I don't have any financial conflicts of interest whatsoever. Just wanted to make that clear. Uh, and then, yeah, we're going to talk about the people's ventricle. So why is it called that? Well, I think, you know, when I first um, came up with this term, I was actually thinking in the book A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. And if you're not familiar with this book, uh, it's telling history from the side of sort of the common folk from people that are maybe underrepresented in, in your typical history book. So, you know, history is usually told by the victors of wars and, and people in power. And uh, and this book took the opposite uh, approach to that. So I think people's history of the cardiovascular system w would be the history of the right ventricle. Um, it lives in the shadow of the left ventricle. It gets ignored a lot of the time. And when it has to rise to a challenge, uh, it's really facing a very different hemodynamic milieu than what, it, than what it's usually normally adapted to. And you can see kind of what kind of pressures and volumes are normally generated by the LV here compared to the RV. Uh, and we're going to talk, believe it or not, a lot more about pressure volume loops because that's kind of how I think nowadays. But um, so it's just kind of a encapsulation of the fact that we are underappreciating and underrecognizing the uh, the challenges that the right ventricle has to face in critical illness, and here particularly in ARDS. And as you'll see as we move through this presentation, there's a ton of gaps still in the literature. So <clears throat> the objectives for today are listed here. Uh, we'll talk about defining the condition, how do we assess the condition, and then what's the rationale and what is the evidence base for the treatments, which is the, the paper that we wrote that the, was uh, referenced. So first of all, if you're going to talk about something, you need to have a definition for it. And uh, the definition for right ventricular dysfunction, ARDS, is really easy. Uh, it's either uh, RVEDA, LVDA greater than 6 with 0.6 with septal dyskinesia, or it's uh, RV free wall strain that's uh, less negative than negative 20, or it's a tapsy of this, or an S prime of this, or it's RVEDA, LVDA of that, or it's this. So what I'll to tell you is we actually have a great uh, standardized definition for this problem. A couple of my colleagues looked at this specific question, um, and in a systematic review identified there were 13 different studies that met their inclusion criteria, and there were nine different, different definitions of RV dysfunction used or RV injury used in, in those. And they used all different modalities. Some used transthoracic echo, some transesophageal, and some pulmonary artery catheterization. So we don't even have a unified place for where we're starting from, which makes treating and studying this uh, very, very difficult. So uh, the first thing we need to do is standardize our, our, our terminology and, and maybe the way that we define these conditions to better inform research and clinical care. 
What's really interesting is, though, if you take a combination of these uh, different definitions, you can see that uh, the prevalence will, will differ uh, and across the population. So this is a sub-study of the ECHO COVID study, which was done in Europe. Uh, and in this study, actually 67% of the patients had involvement of the right ventricle uh, at, at some point or another. And the definitions here are you don't have any uh, dysfunction. You might have acute core pulmonale, which is that... Uh, uh, RV dilation with septal dyskinesia, RV failure, which was defined as RV dilation with a CVP greater than eight, RV dysfunction would be your kind of typical TAPSI, you know, low TAPSI measurement. And then there are combinations thereof of those different conditions. As you can see, as they studied this cohort of patients, they've kind of evolved through different states at different times and the, and the prevalence uh, changed over time. What's interesting is uh, the survival uh, really depended uh, in the study on what kind of definition you used uh, for, for right ventricular dysfunction. You see it looks uh, less favorable to have acute core pulmonale being that having that dilation with septal dyskinesia than the, the definition of RV failure, which was used here. And I think, you know, you could say if you were going to define RV failure in your own practice, you would not just define it by RV dilation and elevated right atrial pressure, but you'd probably want to see some signs of hypoperfusion, which is harder to capture in a large cohort study like this. Well, what's interesting here is the acute core pulmonale has had the highest hazard ratio for mortality in this study, higher than RV failure, which, you know, kind of didn't even reach statistical significance, so it's right on the border. Uh, and RV dysfunction still probably, you know, there's a, this um, confidence uh, interval here is compatible with the still possibility of uh, RV dysfunction being associated with increased mortality, but certainly acute core pulmonale had the highest risk here. So this is something for you to think about as you're taking care of patients with ARDS at the bedside and you're saying, how does that RV look and what does that actually mean? What, what, what were the implications of that in terms of patient outcomes? So speaking of that, uh, how often is this happening and, uh, and what are the risk factors for it? So depending on the definition used, 20 to 25% of patients with ARDS uh, will develop right ventricular dysfunction, and it gives you almost a 50% increase odds of mortality. Uh, another paper done by some of my colleagues where they use the term RV injury to kind of be more, you know, all-encapsulating. Uh, the risk factors are probably well-known by most people in this group. Uh, they are um, first uh, detailed in a study in 2016 um, uh, in, a, in a cohort which used these sort of these cutoffs for uh, driving pressure and P to F ratio and PaCO2, and you can see as you have a, a higher uh, number of these risk factors, your risk for uh, acute core pulmonale increases. Uh, we all kind of are familiar with some of the things that are unfriendly to the right ventricle in terms of uh, hypoxemia, hypercapnia, and acidemia, and you can see how those things interact with one, with one another here, and this is a representation of a graph from an animal study, which shows uh, that you can... Um, experience, you know, as, as these are very common uh, issues that all, uh, all many of our ARDS patients encounter, and depending on the combination and the duration, they may affect the RV's performance. What's really interesting is this study that just came out in the Blue Journal in the last month or two, um, looking at RV uh, function in normal volunteers uh, undergoing hypoxemia. Um, and you have two sets of measurements here. One is a, a PA catheter measurement across the top, and then on the bottom is a pressure volume loop catheter measurements. And you can see they were subjected to progressive hypoxemia. Um, and then even in normal volunteers, you can see moving from the FiO2 of 0.21 to 0.17 that your end diastolic volume jumped up a lot, which, success, which suggests that your RV stroke work went up a bunch. So your uh, energy efficiency of each contraction got a lot worse. Um, and then as you progress uh, to the, the lowest level of hypoxemia here, you can see we're doing a lot more stroke work, which is represented by this larger uh, area for kind of a similar volume. But um, there are some changes here to suggest that the contractility and the afterload both went up 
uh, big time. Um, and we'll talk more about how to interpret these things in a little bit. Um, so it's not only the gas exchange, uh, and it's not only it has to do with um, being in, a, in this disease state, but it's also how do we treat the gas exchange de uh, difficulties. So uh, the ventilator prescription has a large role uh, in how we actually manage these issues. So you can say, well, you know, the driving pressure could have been high in this uh, retrospective study because uh, because of the characteristics of the lung itself, but it also could be the way that we prescribe the, ventil uh, the ventilator, which sometimes is a sabotage. So uh, if you're not already familiar, uh, the lowest PVR the, on this graph here, the x-axis is the lung volume and the y-axis is the pulmonary vascular resistance. So you can see you'd reach a nadir of pulmonary vascular resistance when you're closest to functional residual capacity. If you're under FRC, uh, you tend to uh, compress extra alveolar vessels, and then uh, as you get closer to total lung capacity, the extra alveolar vessels tend to become compressed. Um, so these are uh, two different types of problems, but this kind of gets you out of the mindset where you'd say, oh, all PEEP is bad for the right ventricle. It kind of depends on the circumstance of the lung and the compliance of the chest wall. And so there's, it's a lot more nuanced than just saying lower the PEEP when you have somebody with right, right ventricular dysfunction. Probably the thing that we understand uh, the poorest is what is the actual direct myocardial injury uh, that could contribute to right ventricular dysfunction in ARDS. And this is a lot on this slide, and a, there's a lot of, you know, cytokine pathways and inflammatory things that I don't really understand all that well. But uh, the long and short of it is uh, there's probably some direct myocardial injury in addition to just things that increase the pulmonary vascular resistance that are creating this problem. So you can see an ARDS is a very uh, interesting pathophysiologic and maybe iatrogenic insult. So there's the disease-related factors, some of which we've talked about. There also might be inside tooth thrombosis, which will raise your pulmonary vascular resistance and your dead space, which would make your CO2 uh, handling worse. Um, your normal responses to vasodilator and vasoconstrictors within your own body are altered, and even uh, the responses to exogenous vasodilators and vasoconstrictors may be altered, and the extent of lung injury really will probably play a role here, too. And then there's the treatment factors. Um, is this a case where permissive hypercapnia might be a bad idea? Uh, that's unclear, but it's something we at least need to think about. The way that we manage fluids in these patients is going to have an impact on the right ventricular performance and how and which vasoactives we select also will have a role. And these things interact with one another, which is going to be an ongoing theme of this presentation. So it's not just the disease, it's not just how we treat it, but it's how those things interact with one another. So you can see we're dealing with a lot of challenges here when we're trying to save this, this poor ventricle uh, that's under, under duress. Um, we're trying to balance vent pressures uh, with gas exchange. We're trying to balance gas exchange with cardiac output because sometimes those two things are at odds with each other. And then finally, we're trying to mitigate whatever the underlying cause uh, of the ARDS was. So now we can kind of move into talking about how right ventricular dysfunction progresses uh, as, uh, as we uh, provide uh, ongoing insults to it. So we have to talk about a topic called right ventricular pulmonary arterial coupling, um, which sounds like really technical and unpalatable if you're not into like PV loops, but I'm going to try to get you into PV loops. So uh, when we're talking about RVPA coupling, we're talking about the energetic relationship between the contractility of the right ventricle and the impedance or the, or the resistance to outflow. Um, so this is a typical pressure volume loop. Um, this uh, I should have mentioned already, but all my references are in QR code. So if you want to read the paper that I'm referring to, you can take a picture of that and then it'll take you to the article. Um, but what's important here is a couple of things. We don't have to talk specifically about all these different time points, even though if you really want to understand pressure volume loop relationships, it's helpful. But what's important are these uh, lines that's bounded by. So this line right here uh, is end systolic pressure volume relationship. Uh, and the slope of that line is, is called EES, which is a re uh, reflection of the contractility of the ventricle. So the steeper that line is, 
the better the contractility of the ventricle is. The flatter it is, the worse it is. And then this blue uh, curve here is an diastolic pressure volume relationship. So you can see any stroke volume that you're going to generate in any ventricle is going to be bounded by those two things. So if you have worsening systolic function uh, and that curve, uh, the contractility and that curve falls, uh, you can see your stroke volume will, will be diminished. And similarly, if you're, uh, you have a stiffer ventricle, that blue curve would shift to the left. Um, so then you're, you're binding this uh, stroke line between those two curves. And that's what this article that I referenced talked about here is by Sheldon Magder. It's called RV Limitation, A Tale of Two Elastances. And it's, I'm a big fan of it, but, you know, I'm the type of person that's giving this talk. So take that for what it is. Um, the next thing, uh, the next curve that's really, really important here is the uh, arterial elastance curve represented by E to A. And the slope of this line re reflect, reflects that uh, afterload to the ventricle. Um, in this case, because we're talking about the RV, we're talking about the, the uh, effective arterial elastance of the pulmonary vasculature. So the steeper that slope is, similarly, the higher the afterload is. So the interaction between the contractility and the afterload is this coupling relationship we're talking about. And we represent that by the ratio of those two things, so EES over EA. If you're familiar with this uh, concept from on the left side, because it's something that's important in not only heart failure, but also septic shock, they actually use the ratio in the opposite configuration of EA over EES. I don't know why, um, but that's the way the world is. Um, so we think probably the optimal EES over EA for the right ventricle, the ratio is about 1.5 to 2. So you've got about twice, you should have about twice the contractility for the uh, afterload that you're facing. Uncoupling uh, is work, is likely when the ratio falls uh, and probably be less than 0.8, but it really depends on the population you're talking about. And in critical illness, we really don't know what this number is. If these terms are familiar to you, you, you may be somebody that treats pulmonary arterial hypertension on a regular basis because this is something that occurs over time as the, the MPAP here is a representation of sort of that uh, arterial uh, elastance. So as that rises over time, actually the right ventricle does a really nice job of trying to increase its uh, contractility. And in fact, the elastance can go up by a four to five fold. But you can see over time you become maladapted. Uh, the end diastolic volume will rise, your EF of the RV will fall and your coupling efficiency falls. So this is something that's reasonably well-defined in pulmonary arterial hypertension. Uh, but the problem is we're not talking about pulmonary arterial hypertension. We're talking about acute pH that comes as a result of uh, increased afterload. And we really don't know how the ventricle is going to adapt to that acutely. Um, and, and one of the biggest knowledge deficits in this area is, is how does this play out and what, what are the factors that we can use to predict who's going to uh, develop what kind of pattern of coupling. Some people at this point would say something like, well, you know, isn't, I just heard like the RV is preload dependent. And so don't we just like, you know, maybe need to give it volume and everything's going to kind of turn out okay. Like that seems like a thing that, that's a thing that a resident says to me like twice a week and I have hypertensive urgency and you'll see why. Um, so um, this is what happens under different conditions when you raise the end diastolic volume, which would be raising this preload we're talking about. And you see in panel A here, for the left ventricle, it can handle this rise in, this rise in volume very well because those two curves which bound the stroke volume are pretty far apart because the, the uh, systolic elast the end systolic elastance of the LV is very very high. It's about three uh, in this example. It's usually around like two and a half in real life, but this is a good example. So you can see as I triple my end diastolic volume, my stroke volume stays the same because I'm not bounded by those curves. In a normal RV with an EES of about one. 
I can get away with that up to a certain extent, but once I get to the the higher end, uh, when the, the ventricle becomes stiffer, then the stroke volume really becomes limited. And you can see the stroke volumes here are represented by the, the gray lines. So the gray lines are all the same stroke volume here, and then it gets really small uh, once you've gotten to an end diastolic volume of uh, 100 compared to a starting of like 15 to 20. And what is really, really a problem is when you have a decreased elastance um, so your contractility is imp your intrinsic contractility of the right ventricle is impaired because again you're bonded by these curves and there's not a lot of room to wiggle here. So it goes very quickly if you if you try to raise that volume, you very quickly kind of have a really small, tightly bounded stroke volume. So this is kind of counter to the idea that all the RV needs when it's failing is more volume. And in fact, uh, you'll you'll just make the you'll reach the point where the ventricle becomes stiffer and your stroke volume will actually fall. The thing that we need to think about modulating a little bit more is actually the arterial elastance or the, the pulmonary vascular resistance, the afterload, however you want to characterize it. Um, remember, uh, so the arterial elastance here is the um, dotted blue lines. So a, a steeper one is a higher resistance. So you can see pretty dramatically the stroke volume, stroke volumes are shown here, 110, 90, 70, 50. Pretty dramatically the stroke volume will fall. And if even if you increase that uh, contractility by about a third, um, it really is not going to increase the stroke volume all that much. Um, and it's, again, even worse when your contractility is lower than your afterload sensitivity is going to be even worse. So this is the message here is that we need to think less about the preload and more about the afterload in these settings. Um, and depending on how much the contractility can actually change, it may not actually give you all that much bang for the buck. So it's not just like RV dysfunction, epi, RV dysfunction, dobutamine. You have to like try to think about the other side of the equation. So what does this progression look like um, in a patient with uh, progressive right ventricular dysfunction and failure in ARDS? This is one proposed uh, paradigm, which I think makes pretty good sense. So when you first encounter uh, an insult to the RV, you will have some RV dilation, uh, and that is an attempt to preserve stroke volume by the Starling mechanism. You know, just think about moving on the, on the Starling curve. Um, but it doesn't, you know, teleologically, the RV doesn't want to maintain that abnormal geometry. So um, you'll uh, get an intrinsic increase in contractility by something called the ANREP mechanism, changes your calcium sensitivity to try to recouple and make, make your RV shape normal. The pressures may be higher, maybe a different circumstance, but try to make that geometry normal. Uh, as this progresses, though, the uh, RV will become more and more dilated. You'll get some degree of tricuspid regurgitation. A little bit of that is probably adaptive because it gives you the opportunity to offload some of that volume from a failing RV. But obviously, the worsening TR gets, you get more organ congestion, uh, more like hep uh, hepatic dysfunction, renal dysfunction. Um, and then you're seeing frank systolic and diastolic dysfunction on your echo, let's say. And then finally, progressing to the point of clinical shock when you're in, you have an inability to meet the needs of the system. So this is one proposed paradigm for what this looks like. But again, we don't have patients with time with, uh, you know, sort of time stamped echoes across all these time points. So it's actually difficult to say. Some people may not progress through all these steps. Um, some people may rebound just fine. And some people may develop frank failure very quickly. So um, we have a little bit better of an idea of what we're talking about. Now we have to think about how we're going to maybe recognize that this problem is present, how we're going to assess it, uh, as, you, and as you will see, the data on this. Not so good. Uh, so the first question is, when should I look for it and how should I look for it? There is no consensus on this. Um, we don't know when we should look for RV dysfunction. Should it be something that we do based on risk factors? Should it be something we do routinely on patients? Um, and this complicates research and clinical care because it's really difficult to tell uh, where you're meeting somebody at. We also don't really know how to look. As I mentioned, we, we don't really have a good consensus on what RV dysfunction is. So should we be monitoring systolic function, size? Should we look for invasive hemodynamics? Should we look at something else? 
So I'm going to go over briefly some options that you have uh, for how you might assess this, and then I'll you know, delve into more detail about one particular area. So when I'm considering what are what's available to me uh, in terms of uh, assessment, I try to think about things in terms of one, the invasiveness of the assessment. So obviously, if you can get away with a surface echo and and focus, then you're you're in the best possible place uh, because you don't have to do anything invasive to people. A lot of these patients will be sick enough that they'll have uh, central lines and arterial lines, and maybe there's some value to getting those pressures and those gases. That that might be something that's helpful. If you have a TE program, uh, you know it's it's something that you can consider uh, employing here, and I'll talk more about the pluses and minuses about that in a second. And then, you know, there's still maybe a role for a pulmonary artery catheter in certain patients. And believe it or not, that's me saying that in 2023. And the last time I was here, I gave a talk on intensivism. But we'll talk about why that might be something that's reasonable. Uh, one reason is, um, so this is the invasiveness, but then we have to think about once we've identified the problem, we have to be able to serially assess it because we're going to treat something. We should reassess it to see if we've actually made the difference that we think. So serial assessment becomes uh uh, a different paradigm here. So TE is probably the hardest to do serial assessment on because you're not generally going to leave a TE probe in place for days, um, unless you have like one of those disposable ones that I've never actually seen in real life, but um, but they exist. Uh, then surface ec focus and echo, not that much easier. Like, you know, think about doing serial tapsies on somebody on 18 a peep. It kind of becomes a little bit more difficult. The PA catheter here is something that's left in and continuous, and uh, so that's maybe a little bit easier to do serial measurements of cardiac output and filling pressures and PVR calculations. And then probably the easiest thing, because it just because it's going to be there, is uh, central venous pressures and gases. Now, which one of these is the best? I really cannot tell you. Um, the ideal tool would have, give you multiple data points. It would tell you about volumes of the ventricle. It would tell you about pressures. Uh, it would tell you about RVPA coupling. And uh, and it would monitor cardiac output. So I think some combination of these things is probably what's needed. And it depends on the patient. And it depends on your comfort with these different technologies. Um, and it depends on the setting you work in. If you work in a setting where the PA catheter is not something that's going to be put in, that's not going to be on the table. I like to mostly focus on the transthoracic echo um, because this is what's mostly available to people in most places. Uh, and then the other thing is, you know, I'll talk about contrasting this versus TEE is it's much easier to do quantitative measurements of the right ventricle with surface echo, um, even though it could be harder to get the images. So this is an overview of what RV-focused images would look like for the right ventricle. Um, this is from a paper that we wrote a couple of years ago about RV assessment uh, using transthoracic echo for intensivists. Um, so you can see there's a number of ways where you can see the size and shape of the ventricle, and then there's ways, really importantly, where you can make some different quantitative measurements where you're trying to look down the tricuspid valve to look for, uh, to quantify tricuspid regurgitation or the pressures, or you want to look into the pulmonary valve flow. We'll talk more about those things. There's a lot of different things you can learn from a lot of different angles. And one kind of like little pro tip that I like to give is this box I here is a subcostal short axis view, and sometimes you cannot get a uh, uh, transthoracic, a true transthoracic view that's going to give you the information you need. And this is another really nice cheater view. Uh, if you can't get those measurements, you basically are looking like you're looking for an IVC view, and then you kind of continue to tilt the the uh, probe down so you're, you know the back of the probe down so you're facing the heart. Um, I find this to be easiest in patients with uh, you know lower uh, body mass indexes, and uh, especially patients that have like a little bit of hyperinflation or something that makes it very very easy view. And it, sometimes it looks like you TE quality images, and you can fan from that view down to like you know uh, um, like a mitral valve level and things like that. It's like repeating your short axis from down bow. Really really nifty. Talking about regular 
kind of measurements. So the first thing, we, if, we're, if we're looking at an apical four chamber, and this is more like an RV-focused apical four chamber because that's what we're talking about. Um, one thing that's easy to kind of begin to look at, as we already talked about, is the size. Um, so it should be a, the ratio of the ventricles should be about two-thirds LV, one-third RV. Um, other things that you can kind of see qualitatively without even um, necessarily looking for uh, quantitative measurements is uh, septal kinetics. So here you can see I have some septal flattening and also kind of a dilated RV. The RV is looking bigger than the LV cavity at this point. And that can really progress and probably not in an ARDS patient, but maybe with somebody with pulmonary arterial hypertension, you have somebody that's got such a big RV, it's like smashing the LV out of the view and you can't maintain the, the view. The nice thing about sick RVs, if there's a nice thing about them, is that they're usually easier to see on surface echo. So the other thing that we um, routinely measure is systolic function, and usually we're measuring some sort of uh, uh, longitudinal measurement of systolic function because that's 80% of the motion of the of the RV is, is in that plane. You can see an example here, again, just semi-quantitative or just an eyeball test. You can see the RV on the left uh, has a lot more motion to it uh, in the, um, towards the apex, uh, whereas the one on the right does not. But also I'll point out your attention to the one on the right that the radial function or how much it squeezes side to side is actually really poor too. So that RV is in bad shape. Um, so for a simplified systolic function assessment, I think there's a lot of reasons to be able, very comfortable with TAPSI and maybe RVS prime in these patients. And if you don't get anything else out of this echo part of the talk, I think I'd really focus on this and you'll see why later. There's some reasons why this is a very useful measurement. Um, not only because it's reproduced, the mo one of the most reproducible measurements, it's fairly easy to do, but there's some additional information it, it holds. So um, you're measuring an M-mode cursor across the tricuspid annulus, because it stands for tricuspid annular plane systolic excursion. Then you're measuring from the nadir to the peak, and it should be greater, greater than or equal to 17 millimeters and 1.7 centimeters. Um, different books give different cutoffs, some say 16, some say 18. I try not to uh, quibble about things around the threshold, right? If it's if it's 10, it's really bad. If it's 25, it's uh, hyperdynamic. Um, so that's what's most commonly done. And I think for anybody that does point-of-care ultrasound, you should be doing this uh, to assess the right ventricle. Another complementary measurement is RVS prime, which sounds a lot more complicated, and I promise you it's not. Um, this is a tissue Doppler imaging of the same part of the heart, but what we're looking at is slower velocity. So we're actually trying to look at not the displacement, but we're trying to look at the velocity of the tissue at that point. And the reason to do this, um, aside from looking fancy, would be to actually try to quantify how well the myocardium itself is moving, because this may be a better way to track contractile reserve of the RV than just TAPSI itself. It's like a couple of PAH papers to support that statement. Obviously, we don't know that much about it in critical care. So when you turn on the uh, tissue Doppler, it looks something like this. That's very pretty. And then you're measuring the displacement again towards the apex, and it should be at least 10 centimeters per second. And if it's less than that, that suggests not only your RV is sick, but your cardiac output is probably low. And then the other kind of essential tool for this uh, part of the uh, evaluation is the PA systolic pressure, because again, we're trying to get some idea what the, the pulmonary afterload is uh, in this in this situation. And uh, you find your very best TR jet on whatever view you can get it. Most often, if you can get a nice four chamber, this is the best place because you have the straightest line. And this is a continuous wave Doppler down uh, that uh, wherever you see the color the best across the tricuspid annulus. Here you can see it's a very like not well-defined uh, shape uh, of the um, TR jet. It looks a lot better here, 
Um, and then I can also show you that if you're measuring it, you really want to measure what we say like chin rather than beard. So don't take all that extra stuff. You'll overestimate the PA systolic pressure. Um, and the reason that you might get this is because you're trying to estimate the RV systolic pressure. And RV systolic pressure and systolic PA pressure are really not exactly the same thing. And if you ever do heart caths, you'll know that that's true, especially in patients with pH. Um, but they're kind of close enough. So you take that tricuspid uh, peak gradient that we just measured, and you add the right atrial pressure to it. And a, a fatal flaw here is you have a patient, we're talking about ARDS, so most of these patients are ventilated, and, and you use the IVC measure, the dimensions to estimate the right atrial pressure. That's not a valid way to estimate right atrial pressure, and you'll also fail that question on the critical care board exam. So if you have a patient that's invasively ventilated, you should use the invasive central venous pressure. And again, a lot of these patients have a uh, right atrial, uh, I mean, a uh, CVP in place anyhow. So why did I tell you about RV and uh, PA systolic pressure in such vivid detail? Well, the ratio of these two things is the best non-invasive surrogate of RV-PA coupling that we have at this point. Um, and it's mostly validated in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension, but people have looked at these at this ratio and a number of other conditions purely for prognostic purposes at this point, because a lot of it has not been validated against the gold standard, which would be invasive pressure volume loops. But in this study, uh, which is referenced here, this was COVID uh, patients uh, with ARDS, and um, the you know normal value for this is probably about 1.2. So, but you're looking at millimeters over millimeters of mercury if you use centimeters, and everyone's going to look like they have sick right heart. Um, and the mortality is higher, the lower this number gets, and the cutoff in this particular paper was 0.64. Um, so this kind of intuitively makes sense. If I'm trying to approximate contractility over afterload, TAPSI is kind of getting in the ballpark of contractility, and PA stock pressure is kind of in the ballpark of the, of the afterload. So it's, it has face value. Is it, the per, is it a perfect measurement? No, but it has some face validity. Um, so this has uh, been uh, actually validated against the gold standard in patients with pulmonary hypertension, uh, the correlation is decent, 0.71. Actually, the TAPSI by itself was a little bit better than that. Um, and the cutoff uh, for uncoupling was 17, which is the normal value. Uh, so you can see why TAPSI alone would provide you some information. It doesn't tell you if the contractility is more the problem or the afterload is more the problem, but it can tell you it, it would be a reasonable surrogate of something that you could track. So that would be the advantage of this. But while we're in the neighborhood, we should not miss the RVOT jet. There's a ton of information that lives in this jet. Um, so one place you can get the right ventricular outflow track jet is in uh, the parasternal short axis at the aortic valve level. And you put the, uh, um, and this is a pulse wave measurement, just like LVOTVTI, if you're, if you do LVOTVTI. Um, so you put the gate right underneath the, right on the inside of the pulmonary valve, um, and the measurement, or the, the, the jet will look very similar to an LVOTVTI if you do cardiac output estimation in your shock patients with echo, which you probably should. Um, so the normal here is, you know, if you measure the area, you know, this is a surrogate for stroke volume because I'm looking at the blood ejected out of the pulmonary valve every time. It's probably around 18 to 22, which is similar to the LVOTVTI normal value um, as, as, you know, conservation of mass goes. The, the issue is um, sometimes the RVOT is a little bit bigger, so the number might be a little smaller because, again, the stroke volume from the right to the left should work out to be roughly the same. So on the one hand, you can say, okay, well, I can measure that, and it's a, something I could track in terms of cardiac output. Sometimes you get an RVOT jet better than an um, LVOT jet, but the, probably the better use of it is looking at the characteristics of the waveform. Number one, how quickly does this jet peak? Um, that number is called pulmonary valve acceleration time, so from the beginning of ejection until uh, the peak. Uh, so you could think about this as it should be kind of a parabolic jet, and the quicker you reach uh, the peak, 
um, acceleration tells you that your uh, pulmonary vascular resistance is probably higher. So normally this is a bigger number. It's normally bigger than 130 seconds, but as your pH gets worse, uh, that number will get shorter. And if you take, again, if you take care of patients with pH and you're getting ready to cap them, for instance, this is, a, if they actually measured this on the echo that you have in front of you beforehand, this is a really nice measurement to try to get a head start on whether you think it's pre or post capillary disease. It's something I try to look at on all the echoes before we do our caps. Uh, there's also information that lives in the morphology. So as the um, resistance is higher and higher, you kind of get to this little bit of a W shape because you have uh, basically a wave reflection uh, that returns back to the, the Doppler jet, just kind of like arterial line wave reflection. And then finally, at some point, it'll just become a single spike, and that's even more severe. So um, this is another nice way to try to characterize uh, how, how severely elevated somebody's um, pulmonary vascular resistance or arterial lessons of the pulmonary vasculature is. Here's a neat example from a friend of mine uh, who uh, was using it to manage a patient with ARDS. And so he measured this and not only you can see it accelerates pretty quickly, but it's got that notch in it. Uh, so his uh, assessment was that maybe this patient would benefit from a pulmonary vasodilator. And he gave a pulmonary vasodilator and the patient's uh, RVOT jet started to look like that, which is pretty darn normal looking. Now, this is like the surrogate of all surrogate measures. I can't tell you that, like, the patients, like, went home and lived happily because we made the RVOT jet normal. But it is a nice thing to be able to track because a lot of our our um, assessment tools are very imperfect. One word on TE. I can't talk about every assessment modality in great detail. Um, it's really nice to see... Um, when you can't get surface images, obviously, and you can see dimensions, but it's really, really difficult to actually do quantitative measurements. Um, a lot of them will try to require you to go transgastric, which is a little bit more technically challenging and maybe slightly higher risk than just doing metasophageal views. Um, I think it's a neat thing to do if you have terrible surface images and you want to make dynamic changes while the probe is in place. So, like, I'm going to adjust my PEEP and see how things play out, or I'm going to give a pulmonary vasodilator or whatever you think needs needs to happen, and then you can have a dynamic assessment of the size uh, of the RV and at least a semi-quantitative look at the function because you'll be able to see the tricuspid annulus move. It's just not on the right angle that you can actually measure a TAPSI. Uh, invasive pressure measurements, uh, briefly, um, there's, you know, I still like CVP. I think it's got a role. Um, it's not, shouldn't be used for fluid responsiveness assessment, but if the way the, the waveform behaves, uh, tells you a lot about the state of the right ventricle, because this is telling you about probably greatly the diastology of the, of the RV, especially if you start getting, like, deep wide descents uh, on your tracing. You should really start to think that maybe this RV is in trouble. Um, and it could get to a really extreme extent where you actually have ventricularization of the, of the RV waveform. I don't think you're going to see that many patients with ARDS, but if your, if your, if your uh, RA waveform looks like this, either your catheter's in the RV or your tricuspid valve is uh, there for show only. Um, and risk for uh, RV dysfunction is obviously higher as your CVP rises. Um, it just tells you, it doesn't mean that higher CVP causes a right ventricular dysfunction. It's probably the other way around. Um, remember, CVP is a, where your venous return curve intersects with your uh, Starling curve. So it's, it's, a, it's a data point. What about blood gases? We need to try to maybe quantify cardiac output. Maybe that'll help us. As we know, there's a lot of limitations to using central venous oxygen saturations uh, based on the underlying condition of the patient, whether or not they have altered oxygen utilization. Um, so when I started to think about this, I, I wanted to ask the same question um, using uh, venoarterial CO2 gradient. 
If you're not familiar, that's the central venous CO2 minus arterial CO2 or a mixed venous CO2 minus a arterial CO2. And that number should be small because um, it, it's an indirect uh, reflection of cardiac output and obviously CO2 uh, is rapidly diffusing a uh, pulmonary uh, system. So this number is usually small, and if it gets, it's usually six or less, and if it gets bigger, that suggests your cardiac output is impaired. Um, so I said, well, maybe this is something that we could use because, you know, it's difficult to do echoes, and maybe this would be a good screening tool. So at first, I tried to look at this in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension, and it, like, medium correlates with the lower cardiac output. It's not the best thing ever. But just to let you know, it's out there. And actually, the a lot of the studies, if, you, if you're a venoarterial CO2 gradient enthusiast, a lot of studies will treat um, mixed and central as if they're interchangeable, and here we showed it's really, really not. Uh, since we're talking about PA catheters, there's a couple other things that we should think about if we have, if we, if you have somebody that has ARDS that you think is sick enough that they need a PA catheter, or you're trying to differentiate whether this is actually ARDS or not, and for some reason they have a catheter in place, there are some things you can learn that may or may not be helpful. Remember, it'd be nice to know pressures, volumes, and cardiac output, and I can get like two of those three. Um, most of the data around this is really just prognostic. Um, so patients with a higher transpulmonary gradient, which is the MPAP minus the wedge, uh, have worse outcomes. Similarly, patients with a higher PA compliance have better outcomes. So PA compliance is a stroke volume over the PA pulse pressure. Um, so that's, you know, something if you have it in place, you can kind of maybe, maybe that's something you could actually trend. Um, and then we can, you know, argue about which way you want to measure the cardiac output. That's for another talk. Um, and then there's a lot of, there's a, you know, so both of those studies were secondary analyses of the FACT trial, um, which, you know, back from the early 2000s, trying to look at fluid strategies and catheter strategies and ARDS. Um, this is another secondary analysis of this. And the reason I'm showing you this is like very nauseating, but the, the whole point is a lot of the traditional parameters that we assume are associated with worse um, pulmonary vascular resistance, they only kind of like medium correlated with, uh, with the mean uh, pulmonary artery pressure in this study. There are other systems you can use to assess hemodynamics in these patients, transpulmonary thermodilution or pulse contour analysis devices. I'm not really, not really sure what the role of those is here, except if you're just using them for cardiac output monitors because they're not going to tell you anything about filling pressures or pulmonary vascular resistance in the same way. So my summary of, you know, all these things that I just told you about diagnosis is we don't actually know what the best tool or measurement device is. We have to account for whether or not you can get uh, echo images how, how much do you think you need to do serial assessment? And what's the best tool for serial assessment, uh, assessment? And what's the local comfort with the technology? Um, we also, remember, still don't know what's the optimal time to screen for this problem. Um, and hopefully in the future, we can move towards a unified approach to at least starting to look for when this might be present. Last item on the list to talk about today is treatment. Um, and that was the focus of the paper that uh, I'll talk about. So, um, I say this is state of the art with a question mark because we really um, have a very limited understanding of what we're doing with this problem. Um, it kind of, you know, on, at face value makes sense to try to improve gas exchange and pH and to try to optimize your airway pressures. But this is kind of in that area I call euboxic therapies, which is like try to make stuff normal and hope things go well, which, as you know, in critical care doesn't always work out. So uh, what about adjunctive therapy? Should we change a ventilator mode? Is it better if they're in pressure control, inverse ratio, APRV? Um, should we change, uh, should we be in prone position more? Should we use more inotropes or change our vasoactive medicines around? And is there a role for pulmonary vasodilators? And I've been asking myself these questions for a long time. So we decided to actually see what was out there in the literature. And this is the, the paper that we wrote on this topic. So we kind of scoured the literature from the beginning of time in ARDS until the, few, until the present. 
um, trying to see which papers actually reported on changes in the right ventricle when a therapy was applied. And then was the actual intent of the study to treat the RV or was it just we just happened to get the data? So out of, you know, over 50 years of research in ARDS, we only identified 51 studies that met the criteria I described, and only 30% of those actually attempted directly to modify RV dysfunction report on it. And only three of the papers of the 51 were randomized control trials. The vast majority of the trials are the of the studies were non-randomized experimental studies, so they still have some value because you say I did a treatment and I measured before and after. Um, most of them didn't have control groups. Um, some of these are retrospective. Some of these are case series. So the level of evidence is, is very low. And you can see most of what was studied is like inhaled uh, medications and vent settings. And, and another concerning thing for uh, an audience in 2023 is how many of these were done in the era of lung protective ventilation? You can see probably about a third of them were done before the ARMA trial even, so I don't even know how they apply to a modern patient population. Because um, as you read some of these studies, it's really interesting to see because the the, uh, the fluid management strategies at this point in time were very, very different, um, where we would target filling pressures like, you know, a CVP of this and a wedge of that, which makes me insane because I still hear people say that sometimes. Um, so overall, uh, most of the data we have for this is uh, observational and heterogeneous. Um, we don't really know how individual patients might respond differently, so it's hard to tell how to personalize therapy. We actually don't also know how these therapies interact with each other. What if I prone somebody and I put them on uh, EPO, inhaled epoprostenol? Now is that better? Uh, we don't know those kind of questions. We don't really answer those kind of questions. So remember, the goal of treatment probably should be to restore RVPA coupling. So let's talk about some things that might actually um, – well, let's talk about what we know. Um, in terms of inhaled pulmonary vasodilators, uh, they probably lower the mean pulmonary artery pressure, and they probably decrease, as a result, probably decrease the PVR. But the effect on cardiac index is actually pretty variable. Um, inotropes are something that people uh, like to apply uh, in ARDS uh, with RV dysfunction. The only randomized control trials from 2006, and it used levosimendin, which we don't even have in the United States, and it modestly improved the MPAP, the PVR uh, index, and the cardiac index. Um, and they remarked in the study that patients that were in the levosimendin group needed more IV fluids than the control group. But uh, once again, as of note, they were targeting like a wedge of, I think, 18 in the study. So, I mean, if your cardiac performance improved, your wedge might fall. That would be appropriate. I would not fluid load that. Uh, extracorporeal life support, uh, interesting area um, for us to think about, uh, especially if we're thinking about oxygenation and CO2 being issues. Um, or airway pressures, because it allow you to uh, mitigate the airway pressures if you just need to do lung rest. So in terms of extracorporeal CO2 removal, there is a study that suggests that the sweep uh, flow inversely correlates with the PA systolic pressure, which makes sense um, if you think you're lowering the, after, the PA afterload. Um, and another study suggesting an increase in the TAPSI, which again would be potentially a suggestion that the RVPA coupling improved. BB ECMO, really small studies. Um, here's one, uh, 13 patients, six hours of therapy, and the, uh, the measurements were 15 minutes after initiation of BB ECMO. So the MPAP dropped by about eight. The CVP went down by about three. Um, no change in cardiac output. There's other areas that need to be better uh, investigated, things like OxyRVAD. So this is the Protect Duo, Protect Duo device, uh, which is the um, oxygenator plus the RV support device. Um, dual lumen cannula, um, you know, seemingly like an interesting thing that might be of use in this particular condition. Really no data, um, so not much to talk about, but something that we should investigate in the future, particularly in more severe cases. What about the ventilator? That's something if we have a patient with ARDS, we're all going to have access to. 
Um, RV protective ventilation has been proposed by a few groups, and again, it's kind of euboxic therapies, um, more or less, and with, with more of an emphasis on prone positioning because of the way that might change the distribution of the airway pressures as well as improve the gas exchange. Um, there's a nice paper about this. Uh, it's, it's a review, right? Um, it's not, there's no trials about RV protection, uh, protective ventilation yet. Um, but this is one particular paradigm which may be helpful because again, when we're thinking about, um, the way that we set the ventilator, uh, we're trying to optimize the PVR in this case, uh, trying to get close to FRC, which, you know, we don't really measure. So that's very difficult to say how far we are from it. Um, in terms of uh, being reckless with PEEP, if you just increase PEEP for no reason, you will worsen your gas exchange and your RV dilation and cardiac output. Not surprising. Importantly, though, if you set PEEP uh, to the highest uh, level that gives you the best compliance, um, actually, uh, improved uh, RV outflow impedance, but the comparisons here were the inflection point method, which I think most people don't use anymore, and then zero PEEP. So kind of a straw man comparison. But what's interesting about this, you say PEEP set to the level it gave the compliance the best, made my cardiac output the best. That kind of sounds like the 70s, because this paper, which is really, really great, actually, um, is uh, shows us how little we've advanced, because um, you can see if you improve the compliance and the dead space represented by VD over VT, um, your cardiac output's a little bit better. So that's something to, that we've known for 50 years and still haven't quite figured out how to apply it. Um, and then finally, prone positioning. Uh, the studies that are available suggest improvements in RV performance. Um, there's about 100 patients represented across the three studies that are uh, listed here. So um, I think there's good face value for this. The actual hemodynamic impact of prone positioning is heterogeneous, though, and it depends on how the intra-abdominal pressure and chest wall changes uh, affect the ratio of different uh, hemodynamic parameters, things such as your mean systemic filling pressure over your CVP versus your resistance to venous return. Depending on how those things uh, change will affect whether your cardiac output improves or falls. This is a really neat paper um, to read about that. That problem, this is a, a review paper, physiologic based, but, but very interesting. And then we talked a little, we talked around tidal volume and driving pressure without really hitting it. Um, but this is an operating room study actually in patients that don't have ARDS. And you can see driving pressure was associated with worsening RV parameters or, or, or surrogates for uh, pulmonary vascular resistance in this patient population. So something that we should still think about carefully. Um, again, you're balancing distending pressures versus gas exchange and it becomes challenging. So the, in summary, there's really very few high-quality studies that assess the problem of treatment of RV dysfunction and ARDS, and most of them only demonstrate changes in surrogate physiologic outcomes. So what we need is high-quality observational and randomized trials uh, with patient-important outcomes uh, in this field because we, we really don't have it now. In the meanwhile, I think it makes sense to favor lung protective ventilation strategies like you normally do, and maybe if they have RV dysfunction, think about proning a little sooner than you otherwise would. Um, and, and this is, again, we need to think maybe a little differently about permissive hypercapnia in this group. But I, I think I, I wouldn't make a blanket statement to say nobody with RV dysfunction can have permissive hypercapnia. I think you could say if the person, if you think the person's not tolerating permissive hypercapnia, you try to improve that and see if the RV function improves. So everything that we're going to do in this area is going to be uh, empiric because we don't have best evidence for it. What I would recommend in the meanwhile is to consider some advanced respiratory monitoring devices when you have a patient with RV dysfunction. And also, maybe this is just a patient with more severe ARDS. You should think about having these devices. 
I think volumetric capnography is a great tool in this uh, in this arena because it gives you the opportunity not only to monitor uh, your CO2 handling, but your amount of dead space. Because remember, if you're over-distending uh, healthy lung and causing uh, worsening dead space, not only will the gas exchange worse, but you'll directly raise the pulmonary vascular resistance. Uh, esophageal manometry uh, is a pretty easy uh, technique to pick up. And if you're not routinely using it, um, talk to me about it. I'd be happy to to talk you through starting, um, because I think it's very helpful to make sure that you're setting airway pressures appropriately, especially uh, in cases where you have severe obesity, because it's very common to under-treat uh, the chest wall uh, elastins. And then finally, I think some sort of cardiac output monitoring in a patient with RV dysfunction and ARDS uh, is darn near mandatory, because everything you change can have an impact on cardiac output. Um, and I think so you should be keeping an eye on it. And it's up to you to decide which way you think is the best way to do that because um, there's a number of methods available and they all have their strengths and weaknesses. And remember that the key here would be able to be able to do serial assessments. So what does the future of RV dysfunction science and ARDS look like? I think we have a long way to go. We don't know what the real world prevalence of this is. Um, we don't know which RVs we need to rescue and how. And we also don't know if it's better to prevent the disease in the first place. Probably is, but hard to say. And remember, there's multiple factors that come into play to cause uh, RV dysfunction and to improve or worsen it. There are disease-based factors, there are clinician factors, and then there's the interaction of those two things, which makes it actually quite complicated. This is my oversimplified causal loop diagram uh, that tries to get at some of these issues. So we have uh, red uh, as physician actions or things that we modulate, um, orange are physiologic uh, parameters, which are influenced by what we do as well as the severity of the disease themselves. And then the yellow is kind of our pathway to RV failure in ARDS. Now, this is incomplete. There's a lot more that I need to add to this. But this just goes to show you this problem is very, very complicated, and I think we underappreciate that. Um, we just try to apply a, a blanket statement to RV dysfunction, uh, whether it's ARDS or otherwise, and not consider all the factors that come to play. If I've inspired you to learn more about this, there are three papers that I think are worth reading, um, and they are included here. Um, the last one is probably my favorite. Um, it's not specific to ARDS, but it has some great physiology. You can tell there's some some uh, leaders in the in the field of uh, hemodynamics that that uh, put that paper together. In conclusion, RVPA coupling is life. Thanks for listening. <laughs>